0: Welcome everyone. This is going to be a very special episode of the Humanity Archive Podcast. In this episode, I am going to read the prologue of my debut book, The Humanity Archive, Recovering the Soul of Black History from a Whitewashed American Myth. It comes out in days on February 28th. And this is just going to be a thank you to all of you faithful podcast listeners. I actually recorded the audiobook in studio. So this is not that. This is not the audiobook. This is just me recording a reading of the book on my podcast. So it's separate from the audiobook. But I have emptied myself into this book over the last year and a half. And I wanted to give a sweeping survey of black history that shows how black humanity has been erased, how black history has been whitewashed in the canon of American history. Asking the question, the fundamental question, why is black history set aside, separated, segregated away from the rest of American history and world history? How do we bring it back? So please do me a favor. If you've ever wanted to support me and see the Humanity Archive get in front of more people and reach the heights of success, not in terms of monetary success or anything like that, but success in that these stories need to be widely spread out and heard and felt by the masses then pre-order my book that's really going to put it on the radar and the success of a book happens before it even comes out and I'm an independent producer of this podcast my publisher is an independent publisher we do have national international distribution but this is it's a grind and only through listeners and supporters like you will this book be successful I don't have a big publicity machine behind me or a university behind me to push my book this is just me a one-man band along with my publisher who also likes to amplify marginalized voices in terms of authors in row house publishing so please support the book go to the show notes and it's going to show you how to get there and you can also donate a copy to your local school or teacher and i'll give you the instructions there in the show notes as well and this book The Humanity Archive is an act of recovery. As a black American man, I have seen firsthand the ways in which our humanity has been denied, suppressed and dismissed. It is a cruel and painful experience to be constantly told, either through overt actions or subtle insinuations that you are less than others, that your life has less value, that you are not worthy of respect and dignity. And that is the message that comes across in the denial of black history. If you are black. Herein lies the stories of your ancestors. If you aren't and you look long enough, you will find a mirror of your own humanity. And so without further ado, welcome to another episode of the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler. And today I have a very special episode where I'm going to read the prologue of my book coming out February 28, 2023, the Humanity Archive. Recovering the soul of black history from a whitewashed American myth. Let's get into it. Every February, I think back on my Black History Month education when time-strapped teachers hurried to add black stories to the curriculum. Usually settling on Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and George Washington Carver as the honorable representatives of all things great, black, and historical. I have to imagine if you sat in a public school classroom, you learned about Rosa Parks, who ignored the demand to surrender her seat to a white passenger on a crowded bus because the 42 year old seamstress was tired. As the story goes, an incredulous driver stopped the bus and swiftly called the police who promptly arrested Parks for violating the racial segregation law. That evening, she spent a couple of uncomfortable hours in a bleak little jail cell before local civil rights leaders posted her bail, which was taught to us as though this singular event shifted the moral universe and catalyzed the civil rights movement. To this and similarly narrow stories, I attach my concept of black history in America. There it was, an unassuming, The spectacled woman named Rosa Parks stumbled onto a city bus after a long day at her department store job and into the towering arc of American history. A red, white and blue curve eternally bending toward moral progress. Sensing more to the story, I went to the most logical place, the library. Keep in mind, I grew up in the 90s, so my generation was the last group of kids without Wikipedia and Google searches at our fingertips. Library catalogs weren't even online yet. To find a book, we sifted through thousands of oatmeal colored cards lined up in file drawers, each alphabetically separated by author, title and subject. I loved it. The library was like an intellectual smorgasbord. And yes, I sampled it all. I paced between shelves, ran my fingertips across book spines, peered into forgotten lives, and forged camaraderie with authors dearly departed. Rules are made to be broken. I even folded page corners for bookmarks. The library was clean, warm, and friendly. A welcomed escape from the confrontational, poverty ridden streets on which I was raised. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot. The genre was biography. The author, N O P Parks. There it is. I grabbed the card out of the drawer and went searching for the book, Rosa Parks My Story. Well, before her legendary bus face off, Rosa Louise McCauley Parks was a curious child growing up in Tuskegee, Alabama, which was brimming in black history, including that of the Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University. The town was at that time the wicked underbelly of sweet tea sipping southern racism. At six years old, Parks watched her grandfather, loaded shotgun in hand, vowing to contest death itself as Klansmen terrorized the black community. I wanted to see him kill a Ku Kluxer, she recalled. Far from her reputation as a modest bus passenger, Parks grew up in a deep tradition of self-defense, progressive racial politics and activism. Her family was connected to the black nationalist struggle of Marcus Garvey, and she considered Malcolm X a personal hero, marrying a like-minded activist. I talked and talked of everything I know about the white man's inhuman treatment of the Negro, she once said. By 1943, she worked as branch secretary for the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Despite her radical-leaning politics, she always seemed so centered. Maybe that's why, later in life, she enjoyed the restorative power of yoga. From there, she spent more than a decade registering voters, counseling youth, fighting fire-breathing segregationists, and investigating racial violence. Some stories haunt, like her interviews with lynching witnesses and sexual assault victims. Reese Taylor and Gertrude Perkins were two of them. Both young women abducted and raped by white men. Despite threats of violence, if they did not remain silent, they courageously told the story of their traumas. The sworn officers of the judicial system refused to believe them. Side note, or rather a question, is speaking about these heinous acts too nerve-shattering and too terrible for an adolescent brain? I think not. Isn't it strange that most American children are exposed to violence in their daily lives, yet we seldom give voice to its victims? What's more, this renders violence meaningless, silence acting like a moral sanction for its continuance. Parks went to the scene of the crimes. She consoled the victims. She sought out elusive justice. Back in 1963, she descended on Washington with a human tidal wave of more than 200,000 civil rights soldiers of all creeds, religions, and colors who together stood under the colossal shadow of the Lincoln Memorial to demand that the nation expand its idea of the people. Parks almost didn't make it to the National Mall that day. The male-dominated Southern Christian Leadership Conference was progressive on civil rights, but deeply conservative in its treatment of women. The leaders planned to march them in a separate, segregated procession and disallow them to speak to the masses at the podium. Parks would have none of it. She protested, only joining the march when the leadership reversed its decision. Far from a singular moment, Parks' life embodied a journey made for a great cause. To oversimplify that, life estranges her from a civil rights movement beginning in the mid-1700s. It severs her ties to a prolonged black history of dissent. It cuts her off from a continuum of confrontation and cleaves her from a legacy of heroes who fought the juggernaut of legalized segregation. She was but one in a steady line of black people to use civil disobedience on public transportation as an act of freedom. 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 Elizabeth Jennings Graham, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Freedom, Barbara E. Pope, Ellen Harris, Sarah Lewis Keyes, Claudette Colvin, Aurelia S. Browder, Freedom. Their names read like poetry, a rhythmic meter against injustice. They rebelled on streetcars, objected on trains, and opposed on buses. They broke criminal laws, abiding instead by moral ones. For black people, the lives of our grandfathers and great Great grandmothers and those before them were shaded by segregated experiences we'll never know exactly how many of them fought for equality but when they did they became part of an extraordinary tradition I wasn't tired Parks once recalled no the only tired I was was tired of giving in in a perfect world Black history would be told with textured nuance. Instead, it is reduced to a panorama of caricatures and marketing slogans aimed at a consumer niche hungry for black culture. Black history month sits in the bargain bin of education. The place a thing goes after losing its value, its essence, its very soul. We should not be surprised then that it's been unable to move us beyond a pseudo celebration. But did you know? It was never supposed to last this long. When Carter G. Woodson founded Negro History Week in 1926, the precursor of Black History Month, he dreamed of a day when the observance would no longer be necessary. There's a photo of him taken in 1915 where he's gazing stoically outward, clean shaven and dapper in a well-cut suit with a polka dot tie that belies his upbringing. Despite being a brilliant historian, it's a miracle he earned the title. He grew up desperately poor, only one generation removed from chattel slavery. He almost lost his education to the hard labor of dusky Virginian coal mines. He worked breathlessly to supplement his parents' meager income, but somehow mustered the time to teach himself reading and math, finally graduating high school at 20, then earning a bachelor of literature. Like a plant refusing to surrender to concrete, he grew through his rigid circumstances. His ambition landed him at the prestigious Harvard University, and he walked out as one of the first black minds to earn a Ph.D. He was a man determined, it seemed, to turn the traditional telling of American history on its head. That is because the word American was synonymous with Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian and white. Woodson rewrote black history, combating the lies in thousands of Eurocentric textbooks. Imagine the heroic effort to append the towering myth of black inferiority, liberating black history from a prison of racist fantasies constructed to alienate black existence as an inconvenient fact. Woodson must have gone into those lonely archives like a grizzled old detective intent on solving a mystery with inadequate evidence. Undeterred. He threw himself into the investigation, his every thought, every journal, every book written, acting in service to uplift black contributions to America. But here's the shocker. The venerated father of black history said we should not study black history. Rather, he said we should study black people in history. Therein lies a subtle distinction. One that America has failed to grasp because it requires a simple but at the same time radical revisioning of a shared past. In this future, we would study our collective humanity year round, not solely based on race. We would not have to because our national narrative would be free from the venomous drip of nationalism and bigotry. Woodson cast his history in the best ideals of democracy where every voice might be heard in our history books. Carter G. Woodson was one of the first black historians I ever read. The first time I picked up his book, The Miseducation of the Negro, in 1933, I painted it yellow with a highlighter. In that little book, I learned one of life's greatest lessons. Education is to freedom what the sun is to life. To learn is to survive. And without a knowledge of history, a part of you is effectively dead. And so on we go. In this book, I've recovered a few of the millions of stories from black history to frame the contours of our humanity. But first, let me tell you my own story. Conventionally speaking, I'm no one's historian. I've defended no dissertations, have no Ph.D. to proudly display no real academic bona fides. I poked around the university for a while as a nomad, drifting from architecture courses to mechanical engineering courses, then to marketing courses before jumping ship with an undergraduate degree. The only thing better than hindsight is foresight, much better to anticipate future problems than agonize over how you could have avoided them. Back then, I had neither. I can now say with certainty, my passions lie in scholarship and teaching. However, staring down the double barrel of student loans and monthly rent. A Ph.D. looked very much like financial suicide. Then the Great Recession of 2007 gutted anything left of my higher education dreams. Yet my love of learning remained undiminished. Curiosity is and has been my highest credential. I am an intellectual adventurer, always trying to experience the high of discovering a dose of wisdom, a measure of history, a capsule of humanity. The library is my alma mater. Books are my professors. For what it's worth, my nickname as a kid was the professor because I was always reading and sharing stuff I learned. An adolescent history buff, I remember picking up an old dusty hardcover copy of a book in the library by Joel Augustus Rogers, written in 1934, called 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro with Complete Proof, a shortcut to the world history of the Negro. I read about how he traveled the globe to find the undocumented lives of African descended people. From that point on, I wanted to read as much as I could about black people who impacted the globe. If I psychoanalyze my younger self, some of my study was an act of vindication because somewhere along the line, I'd swallowed the bitter pill of self-loathing and debunking America's pathological lie of black inferiority through history books was a curative. I needed to prove I existed, that we deserve to exist as much as anyone else. I know, a shaky substitute for cognitive behavioral therapy, but in those moments, history books were all I had. I'll never forget the time a librarian led me back into the shelves and showed me every black history book in the library's collection. It's funny how the smallest gestures can have the biggest impact on your life. I spent whole summers reading my way out of that library. I helped enslaved carpenters cut and frame America's colonies and state houses from timber. Artisans constructing porticos, balustrades, and ornate columns, then joiners detailing windows, mantel sashes, and doors. In another book, I created the tools of humanity with black inventors, then... I learned business with unsung black entrepreneurs like Sarah Spencer Washington, who founded the startup Apex, an international empire of beauty schools and products. I felt a kindred spirit with Arthur Alfonso Schoenberg. His life was a manifesto of research and dedication to forgotten history. Without an advanced degree in the subject, he became one of the most meticulous curators and scholars who ever lived so much so that his home resembled a packed elevator stuffed with thousands of books and miscellaneous collections. He often joked that his wife gave an ultimatum, the stuff goes where I go. Eventually, his prolific collection laid the foundation for what is now the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, currently incorporated into the New York Public Library. I appreciated the poets able to structure life's truce in verse. To this day, I remember sitting on the carpet in between the four-tiered wooden shelves flipping through Gwendolyn Brooks and the Mary Baraka. I then helped Josiah Henson shuttle fugitives along the Underground Railroad and joined Elizabeth Freeman in the courtroom to sue for freedom before rebelling against slavery with Nat Turner. I remember reading about Paul R. Williams, the black architect who shaped the environment of Southern California where more than 2,500 buildings stand as a testament to his impeccable design skill. His story inspired me to study the discipline of architecture and how the built environment leaves its signature on human behavior. I read about the black men who fought in the 24th Infantry Regiment during the Korean War, which ravaged the peninsula with artillery fire and death, leaving hundreds of thousands dead. I learned about Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the first black woman to become a doctor in 1864, who immediately put those skills to use helping poor, underprivileged children and the formerly enslaved. I was determined to find the marginalized and underemphasized. I planned the civil rights movement with Ella Baker and Bayard Rustin. Rustin, along with Audre Lorde, inspired me to take a stance against heterosexism. Every book had been like a conversation between me and the writer. Some confirmed my opinion, and others taunted me to change my mind. Meanwhile, I was frustrated. By the dramatic contradictions, I can only assume my school thought its history lessons were colorblind, but the more I learned, the clearer it became that black history was just a cursory scribble. Europe stood as the sole measure of human achievement. Even black heroes were presented in white face. Toussaint Louverture, the astounding general who expelled the French forces from Haiti, was called the black Napoleon. Famed scientist George Washington Carver, the black Leonardo. Granville Woods was the black Edison, Alan Locke, the Black Plato, and the classic beauty of Dorothy Dandridge got her dubbed the Black Merlin Monroe. In everything from civilization to culture, white history was the yardstick of progression. I realized then what I'd internalized after swallowing anti-black stereotypes, they went down like unaged corn whiskey, cheap, raw, and unpalatable. I couldn't believe I'd Unwittingly bought into the idea that white was the only color of possibility and that Europe was inherently better than the rest of the world. So I began my own journey out of the gloomy, dank cave of ignorance. In my indignation, I dove headfirst into Afrocentrism. I took a narrow view of Western civilization, mocking racist Europeans who, in a bid for geopolitical domination, set up a pernicious racial hierarchy that continued to exploit black people. Back then, I thought to hell with those Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire, David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Who were they to sit there in their goofy wigs, theorizing that the white race is the greatest perfection of humanity? Afrocentrism was my sword, shield and body armor. I fought to clear my mind of the lies degrading all things African. The lies that debased the intelligence, beauty, possibility, and capability of African-descended people. The lies that said Europeans founded everything. In response, my whole worldview became black. And that made me gullible to all sorts of conspiracies, half-truths, and questionable facts. Ancient Egyptians, all black Africans. Human civilization, yep, that sprang exclusively from Black Africa. Black Africans not only had a presence in ancient America, they founded its civilizations. Jesus was black. Ludwig van Beethoven was black. I discarded any evidence that didn't support my beliefs. If anyone disagreed or challenged me, I conveniently told them that European scholars hid the evidence. I even trolled my intellectual adversaries with insignificant truths. Yes, polar bears look white. But underneath their plushy transparent undercoat, the skin black, everything black, not just the little. No, like Vanta Black, the scientific lab created coating that absorbs 99.965% of all visible light. I even stopped celebrating Christmas because it was a European holiday. I thought if white Europeans think black Africa is not worthy of consideration and only condemnation, then white Europe is not worthy of consideration and only condemnation. All of this was rooted in pain. It rested on pessimism. An eye for an eye makes the world blind. An African-centered worldview provided me with counterclaims against the myth of black inferiority. It opened a window for me to see how people of African descent made unique contributions to human civilization, pursuing their own values and ways of life. It deepened my understanding of the psychological, social, spiritual, and cultural destruction of African civilization. But I began to realize my deference to a set of assumptions that I never questioned. In a sense, with an all-black worldview, I'd baptize myself in ink. And yet, I found no salvation. In fact, the worst of Afrocentrism was xenophobic, inward-looking and uncritical of its own limitations, not unlike Eurocentrism. Afrocentrism reduced another race to its worst qualities, white supremacist pathology, colonialism and imperialism. There was a certain madness in it too, watching people indict Europe using the critical theories and psychoanalysis crafted by her native-born philosophers, psychologists and social scientists. The Marxists, the Freuds, the Gramsci's, and Dubois of the West. So, I moved beyond the sanctified myths of history to see the interlocking truths that connect all seven billion of us dwelling on Earth. I loved Africa no less. Only then, when I followed the river of black history, I could detour down the tributaries, inlets, creeks, and channels of all races. On my new journey, no matter what cultural stream I drifted on, they all fed back. Into the great ocean of humanity. Compared with the typical American authored history book, which tends to sway toward uncritical celebration or museum of atrocity, this book is a little different. We will not shy from our ever-present power struggles, the spectrum of inequality, nor the deeply flawed history from which they stem. But my aim is to underscore our inextricably linked humanness. No easy thing. Not when media, government, Academia and algorithms exploit our divisions in service to their respective power bases. The dangerous undercurrents of history always pull at us. One million differences divide us and misunderstandings separate us. But we need a sort of double vision so that we still see in common. The fact that any of us were born as a miracle, we all share. Then we live strange and unique lives until meeting our expiration date. Yet we'd be foolish not to acknowledge that American history has sacrificed black humanity to its whitewashing and elisions. The stories are either triumphs or cautionary tales, but black history is too complex for simple binaries and monachian interpretations. So, just like the history of Rosa Parks, we connect on the surface, but seldom in the deep. Black history becomes like a bus tour of Mount Rushmore with big black faces. A few figures like Frederick Douglas, Harriet Tubman, and Martin Luther King Jr. loom so large, it's difficult to see them as human beings. Without self-study or at-home education, most of us would leave school remembering nothing more than the promise of King's dream and how Harriet Tubman traveled the Underground Railroad after tying off her head wrap. Beyond these Central historical figures, millions of other dark human bodies are defined by a simplistic tale of slavery in a strange land somewhere south. There were nameless masses in the pages of the past, lacking depth, breath, action, emotion. I don't think it's unfair to say that history books are still made of ink, wood, pulp, and ignorance. In 2021, a Portland, Oregon mother found her fifth grader reading dehumanizing passages from her school textbook, A History of Us, War, Terrible War, 1855 to 1865 by author Joy Hakim, which teaches children the following stories about Harriet Tubman. She could lift great weights withstand cold and heat, chop down big trees, and go without food when necessary. She had been trained in childhood to take abuse. That was part of what it meant to be a slave. Far from isolated incidents, these news stories act as flag posts across the landscape of racial prejudice. One of the worst examples I remember is from 2017 when teachers at a high school near Los Angeles decided to reenact the experience of slavery by taping students' wrists together and making them lie in the dark before watching a clip from the movie Roots. At universities across the nation, black intellectuals who theorize about race are prime targets of far-right conservatives. State legislators pass sweeping education bills limiting the teaching of black pain to protect white students who might feel upset about it. These concerns operate from an assumption that racial tensions come from discussion rather than the conditions these discussions arise in response to. Instead of telling the truth about the foundations of racial power and how it exists in the present, young minds are taught a comforting narrative of national innocence. In bookstores, I always find myself in the U.S. history section, then somewhere else, trying to locate anyone who isn't white, male, a president, a sports icon, a descendant of royalty, or a model minority who made it. Often, African-American history is segregated into another section situated next to all the other hyphenated Americans, Chicano-American, Asian-American, Native-American, women and otherwise. Black history is an elective and high school deemed optional, if offered at all. It is a separate Africana Studies Department on college campuses. It is set aside 337 days out of the year. These gestures may seem insignificant, but they stand as claims that black history is not part of the American story. The stubborn insistence on the separation of black people, their history and experiences, or anyone else's, is a denial of their humanity. When I think of all this, it reminds me why I started the Humanity Archive in the first place. After all my life's twists and detours, I remembered myself as a kid in the library, the one frustrated by the omissions. In my school lessons, the kid who could talk about how. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Quote, Shakespeare, tell you about Homer's Odyssey, the innermost thoughts of Emily Dickinson, the exceptionalism of the Constitution, and the apocryphal kite flown by Benjamin Franklin in a thunderstorm, but who knew little to nothing about black history. We tamed the wilderness with an adventurous Daniel Boone and even learned to empathize with the internal struggle Of the founding fathers, as they held the wolf of slavery by the ears, as Jefferson said, unable to safely hold it or let it go. We even felt the pain of rural white farmers, their poverty and hopelessness frozen forever in the harrowing photos of the Great Depression when painting the delicate brushstrokes of humanity. White was the primary color. I don't know if you've ever felt compelled to do something like a deep and audible voice beckoning you to some purpose. I did, and it was calling on me to share my curiosity as well as my love for knowledge and history with the world. So I bought a cheap microphone and started narrating the stories on my podcast. In one episode, I told the story of Benjamin Banneker, a free black man in the 1700s who wrote to Thomas Jefferson asking him to end slavery. I told the story of Katsuchika Hakusai. A Japanese Yukioi artist who once dipped the feet of a chicken in red paint, then chased it to produce fall leaves for an art competition. He won, then another on Pocahontas, but from the perspective of her people, Socrates, Fred Hampton, Queen Zynga, more on her in chapter nine, Juneteenth, and one on the history of police in America. I just kept telling the stories of humanity, the stories of the historically unheard It all led me here to writing this book. When you turn the final page, I hope you understand three things. Number one, how black history has been whitewashed. Number two, how to make connections between past, present, and future. And number three, the important role black people have played in human history. This is not a textbook. And it is not a book with any groundbreaking original research. This is not a Herculean attempt to cover all black history in a few hundred pages, nor is it a neat little linear timeline of history. This is a book that follows the pendulum of history as it swings back and forth. This is a book where we will jump into the mess of history and sort our way out of it. I offer few prescriptions and I have more questions than answers. What I am offering is an outline of black humanity stitched from images stretching into a far-reaching past. Think of this as a reconnaissance mission. We'll scout the routes of knowledge, map the obstacles of whitewashing, and survey the black historical landscape. We'll probe, seek, and sometimes stumble into the stuff that makes us human. I've broken this book down into four parts to guide us. First, we'll explore how the truth has been hidden from us and how our history shapes not only our identity, but our concepts of truth. Second, we will build the foundation looking back, way back, millions of years into time to show how black people have been essential to the development of our entire species and to the world, to America, to the flowering of our humanity. Only then will we see that Western culture is not the sole proprietor of freedom, wisdom and virtue, nor is it the sole source of exploitation, greed and tribal indifference. Then... We take a closer look at the walk from slavery to freedom or what we might call anti-black history, but also we will show its resistance. Stories of oppression are highly visible in this book because they feature heavily in the black American experience. This history still ripples through our institutions, and I'm far from the first to point out how it's still evident in our justice, health, education, housing and environmental inequalities. Individual racism as a pathology, refuses to die, and, like most deep-seated prejudices, it'll likely never be fully eradicated, springing up like a weed year after year through fear-based myths and stereotypes. We choose to rewrite that history in our own hearts and minds, or not, to our personal liberation or peril. Finally, we will chart possibilities and look at how modes of thinking, belief, and action have helped people transcend mere circumstance to live lives of meaning and transform the world. You'll likely notice that I don't have a chapter on the 1954 through 1968 civil rights movement. I tell a lot of stories from that era throughout the book, but those years get enough attention, likely because they fit neatly into the national narrative of American progress. Together, we will reimagine history. We will question who are we and what has America become By denying black experiences, we will see that the soul of black folk is infused into American music, food, art, language, literature, science, thought, politics, values, and encoded into the double helix of our collective being. We will confront the atrocities of American history because there are still black descendants of Thomas figuring out what it means to be in the lineage of Jefferson and because the past still lingers into the present with its consequences then most importantly, we will move beyond dark truths and briny tears. I wrote this not only as a confrontation with the past, but out of love for it. When I look back, I also see endless human possibility. I see life, laughter, and the eternal sunrise in the faces of those who've come before us. History is the autobiography of the universe. It holds our shared memories, transporting our lived experiences across space and time. We need our history. Charles C. Seifert said people without a history is like a tree without roots. We are the branches forever reaching upward. But it is human nature to long for our origins. It's no wonder genealogy and ancestry tests are so popular because without our identity, we are rendered inhuman. Black people were rendered inhuman. We still are in many ways, which is why this book is dedicated to rendering black humanity as a visible part of the whole my favorite quote the ethos of this book comes from a second century african roman playwright named terence and in latin it goes homo sum humani in the hill i alien puto which can be translated as or i am human and i think nothing human is alien to me As I write this, there are 331 million people living in America. We have centuries old divisions that have yet to be mended and scars that have yet to heal. But the only way this American experiment continues is by finding some uniting principle, something that can resonate beyond race, religion, politics, ethnic background, gender, sexual orientation or culture. That thing will be and has always been our humanity. That's all I was searching for as I wandered through those libraries. Black humanity. And I hope, whoever you are, as you flip through these pages, as you read these stories, you see yourself and find your own. And that is it, everyone. The prologue to my book, The Humanity Archive: Recovering the Soul of Black History from a Whitewashed American Myth. I want to let you know why I wrote this book, what it means to me, and what you will get out of reading the book. I hope that you support me. I have so many listeners who enjoy, love, and listen to this podcast every single day. If each and every one of you buys a copy of this book, supports this work of black history, it will find its place in the canon of black history books, in the canon of American history books, but only with your support can this book succeed and have a light shined on it Get the attention it deserves. I appreciate each and every single one of you for listening, for taking your time. I love you for your support of humanity, for your support of black history. Links in the show notes to buy the book or head over to the humanityarchive.com backslash books right now. Purchase my debut history book. Show your love, show your support. Signing off, I'll see you next time.